Shortly after Mrs. Dress departed, Father Pernan felt another hot gust of wind, and the bushes near his half-built church ignited. Grateful for the new dug well, he single-handedly doused them, suffocated them with wet blankets, and beat the flames to death. Yet what this meant, despite all portentous signs, he would not allow himself to think immediately. He would confide to Captain Robin, I entered my parish house uncertainly and stood in the threshold distractedly, only to turn about, leave it again, feeling inexplicably restless, though at the same time feeling devoid of anything like energy. I retraced my steps to my church mindlessly to conceal within myself as best I could my vague but continually deepening anxieties. On looking toward the west, whence the wind had persistently blown for hours past, I perceived above the dense cloud of smoke overhanging the earth a vivid red reflection of immense extent. And then suddenly it struck on my ear a strangely audible discontent muffled in the preternatural silence reigning around, a distant roaring sound announcing that the elements of the earth and air were somewhere in commotion. I instantly resolved to return to my house and my stable and prepare to leave. Without hesitation, I knew whatever events were impending, it was necessary to escape body and soul, and quickly, from listlessness and indecision, I suddenly became active and determined this change of mind was a great relief. The vague fears that had heretofore oppressed me vanished, and another idea, certainly not a result of anything like mental reasoning on my part, took immediate possession of my mind. It was not to lose any time in saving my possessions, but to make flight as speedily as possible in the direction of the river. Henceforth this became my ruling thought, but it was entirely unaccompanied by anything like fear or perplexity, my mind seemed all at once to become perfectly tranquil. I was given a grace. Blame was put to many by many, but this was not it. Not the idle fire of the savages who, despite the prejudice of the white man, did nothing in idleness, though it were done with frugal, patient, easy simplicity. For this wilderness is his home, and he would not destroy his home. And not this, the indiscriminate spark spewed with tarry belch from stacks of raging locomotives, nor sparks of their clashing cars, nor sparks of their metal wheels gnashing metal rails on tight turns, and not the runaway flames of bonfires fed with slash of farmers clearing their land, nor the incendiary demented tramp nor scheming destitute homesteader, nor the cigarette tossed into the ditch, and not the little boy with matches, nor Catholics, anarchists, Jews, niggers, or prostitutes, and not the cow that kicked the lantern in the barn. None of these can take the blame. It was the comet, alien of the night, avenger, messenger, that which is beyond purpose or trust or tolerance that to which we are helpless. It was manifest God, his judgment upon us. And if it is just, then it is just like war is just. And you shall see the truth in the hollow stare of the soldier looking upon the scene of his carnage. 
And if justice is transfigured cruelty, then is our God cruel. Seen only by a few, the glimmers of the bluish plasma lurked in low-lying places across the continent, below the vast splash of the cosmic agency above. Coiling the trees in the sugar bush in the far northern bay, licking at remote waters on the shore of the Great Lake, puddling in the basements in Chicago's Gold Coast, condensing with the exhalations of some cows in the hay of a certain barn. At 8.30 that night, Mrs. Catherine O'Leary lay in her bed in her cottage on DeCoven Street, west of the Chicago River in a division of the great city from which Tilled Prairie could still be seen. She slept deeply, though her neighbor Mrs. Murray was holding court on a raucous party, where having drunk whiskey all day, her rowdy guests sang loudly and obscenely. One of her guests intruded then into Mrs. O'Leary's barn to milk one of her cows, so that they might partake some oyster stew. I was in bed myself and my husband and five children, Mrs. O'Leary recalled, when the fire commenced. I was the owner of them five cows that was burnt, and the horse, wagon, and harness. I had two tons of coal and two tons of hay. I had everything that I wanted in for the winter. I could not save five cents worth of anything out of the barn. Only that uh, Mr. Sullivan got out a little calf. I didn't save one five cents out of the fire. I guess it was my husband got outside the door, and he ran back to the bedroom and said, Kate, the barn's on fire. I ran out, and the whole barn was on fire. Well, I went out to the barn, and upon my word, I could not tell any more about the fire. I got frightened. I got so excited that I could not tell anything about the fire from that time. Then I catched one of the children and put him out on the sidewalk. At the time I first saw it, my barn was, and Mrs. Murray's barn was afire, and Mr. Dalton's little shed. I thought there was no more places on fire, only our places down there. And I saw Turner's big block on fire, and I thought there wasn't a touch on Turner's block until then. I saw the fire from inside, break out from Turner's block. Yes, sir. Then the men went and fixed two wash tubs on both hydrants. There is a hydrant in front of our place and a hydrant in front of Mrs. Murray's. They set up two wash tubs and then began to put water on the little house and everything was gone. Only the little house. And they made for that and kept it wet all through until the fire was gone. Never had five cents insurance. I had these cows. One of them was not in the barn that night. It was out in the alley, and that one went away. I could not get that one. My husband spent two weeks looking for it and could not find it anywhere in the world. I could not get five cents. I had six cows, a good horse. I had wagon and harness and everything I was worth. I couldn't save that much out of it, she snapped her fingers, and upon my word, I worked hard for them. And so it was, like a snap of the fingers, 
Homes and wealth were consumed that night. Everywhere the land inflamed. In the sugar bush, in the Bradstreet homestead, goodwife Bradstreet had not been asleep, but lay and listened to the horrid sounds of wind and flames that then approaching came over their home. In silent night, when rest I took, she wrote upon a scrap of paper afterwards. For sorrow near I did not look, I wakened was with thundering noise and piteous shrieks of dreadful voice. That fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know is my desire. I starting up the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry to strengthen me in my distress, and not to leave me succorless. Then coming out beheld a space, the flame consumed my dwelling place. Half past eight, Father Pernan, sensing doom, let his horse go loose and began to dig a trench with a pickaxe, where he would bury his books, crosses, medals, and rosaries, and hope to preserve them. The glowering sky, the increasing intervals and rising fury of the hot gusts, now assured him of its certain menace, and he was astonished that none around him seemed to know or care. Mrs. Dress had gone to bed, in spite of it, or because of it, he saw the candlelight in her bedroom extinguished. A neighboring American family was entertaining some friends at a late tea. The gas-lit room in premature darkness, which they occupied at the moment, overlooked his garden where, in the square of light from it, fell on him, who was burying his belongings. They could see him, and he could easily overhear them the smothered laughter of some of the young girls, amused at his expense. The actions of a priest always make an impression, perhaps more especially on Protestants. Mrs. Tyler, the hostess, came out in time and asked, Father, do you think there's any danger? I do not know, was his reply, but I have unpleasant presentments, and I feel myself impelled to prepare for trouble. But if a fire breaks out, Father, what are we to do? In that case, Madam, seek the river at once. He further explained himself to Captain Robin as his injuries were dressed, and he was given refreshment. I had her no conscious reason for advising such a course. Perhaps I had really none to offer. It was just innate conviction but shortly after, Mrs. Tyler and her family started in the direction of the river, and thank God for that. All were saved while I learned that out of the eight guests visiting that evening, all perished, with the exception of two. The atmosphere was heavy and oppressive, strangely affecting the strength and rendering respiration painful and laborious. The only consideration that could have induced me to keep on working when I found it almost impossible to move my limbs 
was the fear growing more strongly each moment into a certainty that some great catastrophe was approaching. The crimson reflection on the western portion of the sky was rapidly increasing in size and in intensity. Then between each stroke of my pickaxe I heard plainly in the midst of the unnatural calm the silence reigning around, the strange and terrible noise already described, the muttering of which became more distinct as it drew each moment nearer. The sound resembled the confused noise of a trailing mass of knocking cars and several locomotives plunging to a railroad station, or the rumble of thunder, with the difference that it never ceased, but deepened, got louder and closer each moment more and more. The wind, forerunner of the tempest, was increasing in haste and violence. The redness in the sky sickened, and the roar, the roar seemed falling down on us. It was now time to think of the blessed sacrament, object of all objects, precious, priceless, especially in the eyes of a priest. It had never been a moment absent from my thoughts, for of course I had intended from the first to bring it with me. Hastening then to the chamber containing the tabernacle, I proceeded to open the latter, but the key owing to my haste slipped from my fingers and fell. There was no time for delay. I caught up the tabernacle with its contents and carried it out, placing it in my wagon, as I knew it would be much easier to draw it thus than to bear it in my arms. My thought was that I should meet someone who would help me in the task. I, I re-entered to seek the chalice which had not been placed in the tabernacle, when a strange and startling phenomenon met my view. It was that of a cloud of sparks that blazed up here and there with sharp detonating sound like that of gunpowder exploding, and flew from room to room. I understood then the air was saturated with some special gas, and I could not help thinking if this gas lighted up from mere contact with a breath of hot wind, what would it be when fire would come in actual contact with it? Outside the door, in the cage attached to the wall, was my pet bird, a jay I had found, that I had had in my possession for a long time. The instinct of birds in foreseeing a storm is well known, and my poor jay was fluttering wildly around his cage, beating against its bars as if seeking to escape and uttering shrill notes of alarm. Why did I not free it? I did not think of it. I cannot say, and I grieve for its fate. I turned to look back once more, and the last I could see of my home. I saw my lamps, still lit, burning on my table, and I thought as I turned away how soon their gleam would be eclipsed in the vivid light of a terrible conflagration. Father Pernan took his buggy from his barn and placed the tabernacle with its holy sacraments and holy vessels into the back of it, determined to pull them to safety. Vivid, red, glowering to the west, reflected on the belly of a low gloom of thick smoke that now overcast them, a ponderous ceiling, so low and so dense that it looked like it could be snagged by a hook and rope. From 
across the Chicago River, Fanny Bell, age five, looked out on the lumber yard in the western division, just north of Mrs. O'Leary's barn, and saw it burning. People were on the roofs of their houses trying to beat out fires with wet blankets. Showers of sparks were washing over them and spraying even where little Fanny Bell stood beside her mother. There were a great many people out to see it, and often she could see nothing for the crowd of people. Her mother kept her up until a late hour, and she was very tired and got her mother to put her to bed. About ten that night, the fire leapt the river and ignited the houses on the other side. It began to eat its way to the business district. The firemen, losing the battle on the western division, abandoned it, and crossing the bridges north of it, now drove their teams and hydraulics to the new fire threatening the heart of the city. Fanny Bell was awakened by her mother and told to dress, for the fire was all around them and they would soon be burnt out. Her mother put all her valuables into her sewing machine and locked it up, and threw some things into her trunk. Fanny Bell carried her mother's fur box, with furs in it, her account book, a parasol, and her porcelain-headed cloth doll, whom she called Jeanie. They could not save the sewing machine, but did save the trunk. While her mother went back into the house, her mother's gentleman friend took her around the corner to Monroe Street and waited, and soon her mother joined them, dragging a large hair mattress. The air was full of cinders and so hot that it almost stifled them. Fanny Bell was almost blind with the dirt and cinders that filled the air and could not open her eyes. They could not get anyone to carry their things. The gentleman friend lashed his mother's trunk and his own together and lashed the mattress on top of the trunks, and because the trunks had casters, he pushed them into the street. When they got to the corners of Dearborn Street and Jackson, a few blocks away, they stopped at the house of a friend to see if they thought the fire would come there, and if not, they would go up to their apartment and stay. A man who was standing near and heard what her mother said to her gentleman friend offered to watch Fanny Bell as they went to speak to their friends inside. Her mother thanked him and, and said she would not trouble him, but he said it was no trouble, and took the child's hand while they went inside the building. The man said he would like to help the child hold what she was carrying, but Fanny Bell did not like his looks and told him that she could carry it herself. And when a crowd of people thickened around them, Fanny Bell dodged away from him and ran, and she did not see him again. Nor did she ever see her mother or her mother's friend again. In the sugar bush, the Bradstreets had lost their home, when he could no longer look, Goodman Bradstreet knelt and prayed, Blessed his name that gave and took that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so twas just, it was his own, it was not mine. Far be it that I should repine, he might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. In Peshtigo, Father Pernan vainly called his dog that, disobeying the summons, concealed himself under his bed, only to meet his death there later. 
Then he hastened out to open the gate to bring forth his wagon. Barely had he laid a hand on his wagon that the wind, heretofore violent, rose suddenly to a hurricane and quick as lightning blasted the way for his egress from the yard by flinging planks, gate, and fencing all away. Ah, the road is open, he thought. We only have to start. Yet he feared he had delayed his departure too long. It would be impossible to describe the trouble he had to keep his feet, to breathe, to retain hold of the buggy which the wind strove to tear from his grasp, and how he kept the tabernacle in its place as he drew his wagon. To reach the river, even unencumbered by any charge, was more than many succeeded in doing. Several failed, perishing in the attempt. How I arrived at it, he confided to Captain Robin, is even to this day a mystery to myself. The air was not fit to breathe, full of sand, dust, ashes, cinders, sparks, smoke, and fire. It was almost impossible to keep his eyes open to distinguish the road or to recognize people, though the way was crowded with pedestrians as well with vehicles crossing and crashing against each other in the general flight. Some were hastening towards the river, Others fled away from it, whilst all were struggling alike in the grasp of the hurricane. A thousand discordant, deafening noises rose on the air together. The neighing of horses, falling of chimneys, crashing of uprooted trees, roaring and whistling of the wind, crackling of fire as it ran with lightning-like rapidity from house to house. All sounds were there, save that of the human voice. People looked stricken. They jostled each other without exchanging looks or speaking. Speechless as the dead were the living, but the world around us shrieked and howled, torn to pieces while we stood, silenced in our terror, told Father Pernan. Though meeting in crowded traffic many vehicles taking the opposite direction, he did not think it better for him to follow them. Probably they thought the same thing. Everyone acted on instinct for good or bad, wise or witless, as fate would prove. All hurried blindly into their desperate directions. The wind overturned and dragged him with the wagon close up to the very tavern where the drunken debauchery still madly raved. Like evil in celebration of chaos, they still ranted and laughed. Gleaming faces like sunburnt, like demons in the glare of fire, shooting, sheeting, over the top of the city, roofs bursting aflame beneath it by its sheer heat, even if not touched by it. Knocked over by wind, laughed at by these wicked fools, he righted the wagon in himself without their help, 
and pressed on and was thrown down again over some motionless object lying on the earth. It proved to be a woman and a little girl, both dead in the street. He raised the woman's head. It fell back heavily as lead. With a long sigh, he rose to his feet, but only to be hurled down again by the hurricane. Farther on, struggling with the forces, he met his own horse, that which he had set free to the street not far behind him, confused, lost, panicked in the churn of smoke, dust, sparks. Whether the horse recognized him, he could not tell. But struggling to his feet, Father Pernan felt the horse head lean against him and whinny. The horse was trembling. Father Pernan called his horse by name and tried to draw it away with him, but the horse would not come, so he let go of it. He came to the river. The houses and buildings adjacent to it were on fire, and the wind blew the flames, sheeting, rippling, flapping in lengths over the water, and drove the cinders like a spray directly into the water, sizzling across it. Where he stood was greatly endangered, so he looked across to the bridge, but it was already on fire. Fire now consumed the city on both sides of the river, and fire had taken hold of the bridge between each side. But each of those on the opposite side thought the other side the safer, and each thought they could escape to it. So each pressed against the other, pressing on to that bridge and its myriad flame-coiled mills and storehouses, those who lived in the east were collecting to hurry towards the west, and those who dwelt in the west were colliding to crowds and wildly pushing towards the east. So the bridge had become thoroughly encumbered with cattle, vehicles, women, children, and men, all pushing and crushing against each other so as to find escape, and all now more or less trapped and entangled amongst each other as the flames on the bridge itself were now overtaking it. Father Pernan wanted to descend in the river above the bridge where he knew the shore sloped and the water shallow, but he found it impossible to pass through the raving masses. But the sawmill on that side and its mountain of sawdust were now like liquid fuel for fire. They were both crackling hot. The flames from these poured across the throat of the bridge, and the people there, their clothing wicking with them, all lit up like human torches, and the planks of the bridge itself now also caught fire and fed a rising dense wall of flame that no one could cross without meeting with instant death. He was thus obliged to descend to the river below the bridge, into the jumble of rock and the crash of the falls where the water obtained a great depth and so risked drowning. The bridge, its trussing in roaring, hurling flames, would soon be engulfed in the bridge, would soon collapse and tumble into the waterfalls over which it hung. The bowels of the wenches, water wheels, cogs, and gears groaned and exploded as the bridge, its mills, its structure careened. People in flames leapt or fell from its listing platform. Soon the hundred or so persons' livestock, if they did not pass back to the other side, shall also fall. Father Pernan, helpless in his despair and the shock of their uncommiserated deaths, moved numbly, pushed by others, several hundred yards down the river, down the flank of the shore, down the sloping roadway to the piers where the steamships dock, and there he pushed his wagon containing the tabernacle over the edge of it 
to tumble and nearly submerge in the water. It was all that he could do. This whirlwind of hell on earth which had plunged the fire upon the town now in a moment rose up as in a gasp, lifting up its thick and acrid swirl of smoke, dust, and cinders so that momentarily, as in a hole in the sky, Father Pernan could see clearly. The banks of the river, as far as the eye could see, were covered with people standing there, lividly lit, standing motionless and dumb as statues, eyes staring upturned into the black hole of the sky, streaming with near meteorites, their tongues protruding. They seemed to have no idea of taking any step to save themselves, bewildered and dismayed, imagining, as so many afterwards told them, that the end of the world had come and that there was no hope for them and no escape but submission to horror. Without uttering a word, Father Pernan began pushing them, one by one, pushing them into the water. Then he plunged into the river himself. Father Pernan took Captain Robin's hand in his too and leaned forward on the settee and peered into his very soul and addressed himself to those depths. He held this moment as a hallowed, harrowing memory for the rest of his life, telling Captain Robin, trembling to recall it, I had to look to the saving of my life. One of those I had pressed ahead sprang back again with a half-smoldered cry, complaining, I'm wet. But immersion in water was better than immersion in fire, I told him. I caught him and dragged him back into the river with me as far as possible. At the same moment, I heard a splash of water along the river's brink. All on shore had followed my example. It was time. The air was no longer fit for inhalation, whilst the intensity of the heat was increasing. A few minutes more and no living thing could have resisted its fiery breath. Cows and pigs swam in the river around him, and the other people in the river colliding with them. A woman, clinging to a cow by its horn, was carried out of the river as it escaped in its frenzy. She would not let go. A young woman, approaching the river, looked into the bundle that she had carried, wherein she had put her baby, but seeing that it was empty... She began a shrill and horrid moan and tried to run back into the overwhelming crowd advancing on the river, and hysterical and hopeless, saw she could not find her, and so she turned, entered the river, and drowned herself. In her home near the Great Lake in Chicago, Bessie Bradwell, 13 years old, put on her best clothes to save them from the fire. Her mother slipped on a wrapper over her nightgown and hurriedly packed a trunk with the family's most precious possessions. Passing by a closet where her father's Masonic clothes were, Bessie picked out father's Masonic hat and put it on her head, exclaiming, Masonry will certainly be an aid at a time like this. With her birdcage tightly clasped in her arms, and the poor little bird gasping for breath in the smoke, her mother hurried Bessie ahead of her, and they went down the stairs to the first floor, where the townhouse faced Washington Street, 
and the great lawn on the shore of the great lake, and where already it was madly teeming with hysterical crowds whose distraught faces showed the fires of Chicago gleaming upon them. The young editor of the Tribune stood on the State Street Bridge on the main channel of the Chicago River and saw the business district of Chicago being rapidly overtaken by flames, saw its inhabitants pouring northward toward the bridge in terrified escape to the northern division from whence he came. He would later write to his memoirs, Vice and crime had got the first scorching. The district where the fire got its first firm foothold was the Alsatia of Chicago. Fleeing before it was a crowd of blear-eyed, drunken, and diseased wretches, male and female, half-dressed, ghastly, with painted cheeks, cursing and uttering ribald jests as they drifted along. But looking left towards the river, he saw the flames leap across the river near the Great Lake and charge through homes toward the water tower in the northern division itself. He wrote, The dogs of hell were upon the housetops, bounding from one to another. The fire was moving northward like ocean surf on a sand beach. It had already traveled an eighth of a mile and was far beyond control. A column of flame would shoot up from a burning building, catch the force of the wind, and strike the next one, which in turn would perform the same direful office on its neighbor. It was simply indescribable in its terrible grandeur. As he himself bore witness, in the streets enraged citizenry banded and found lone Negroes and others deemed Irish and Catholic, hapless vagrants and forlorn prostitutes, all of whom they accused to be the incendiaries and hung them at the lamp posts until they strangled to death on makeshift nooses. Plundering, roving gangs of rowdy boys were shot at and shot to death without warnings. More people still, innocent ones, trapped in tenements, died shrieking in the embrace of fire, suffocated from smoke, crushed under collapsing walls. The streets were crowded with men looking for their wives and children, children looking for their mothers, husbands for wives and wives for husbands. Teams of every description were busy in hauling away goods to places of security. Sometimes a large wagon rolled by filled with the household goods of a dozen families, and all the men pulling and the women pushing it ahead. Horses and cows were running loose up and down the streets, and everybody was at work for himself or a neighbor. The southwest wind blowing a hurricane, howling like myriads of evil spirits, drove the flames before it with a force and fierceness which could never be described or imagined. It was not flick of flame, but a solid battering ram of fire which was hurled against the buildings. And the houses did not just burn, they were simply immediately destroyed. The flames would crash against the sides of a solid block and in one instant pass out through them to the other side and the whole building would just melt away and disappear in vapor.
they saw the business district of Chicago was doomed. Judge Bradwell's first thought was to save the rare old law books, which he had been collecting for years and which, if they were burned, he could never replace. Taking little Bessie, who yet wore his Masonic hat, and his wife, who still carried her canary in its cage, the judge went to his law offices, which were located opposite the Chicago courthouse. Bessie's dress caught fire two or three times by sheer heat and by cinders falling upon her. People ran up to her and smothered the flames with their hands. But they hurried on, the fire madly surrounding them. On the street before the courthouse it was confusion, worse confounded with people crowding on all sides. It was like a snowstorm, only the flakes were red and fiery instead of white and frozen. Her father came out of his office as it began to catch fire on its roof. He gave her a heavy ledge to carry for him. On one side, Bessie was jostled by a man shrieking, Oh, the poor prisoners, they will be burned alive, locked up in their cells. On the other side, Bessie was knocked down by a burly negro carrying on top of his head a crate of live chickens. Trying to escape the business district, bearing north to the water tower, people were shouting at the judge. Come, come with us. We must get over the river at once. Get over the bridge. The State Street Bridge was burning. On the bridge, a man hurrying along cried out, This is the end of Chicago. Where is Bessie? Mrs. Bradwell said. Why, I thought she was with you, said the judge. Distraught, but seeking to save their own lives, the grieving Bradwells persevered to the park along the lakefront across from his burning home. The park was littered with goods that had been taken out of stores and homes and placed there. Judge Bradwell concluded that the fire would sweep all over the park and that the only way to save his precious trunk was to bury it. He found a shovel and proceeded to dig a hole in the park to bury the trunk. The park was used by the city's baseball grounds, up walked a policeman and showed his star, Sir, you are defacing the ball grounds. The judge raised his shovel to strike the policeman if he tried to stop him. You go on or I'll make you see more stars than you ever saw in your life. The new and modern, efficient and ingenious waterworks of Chicago soon completely failed. Destroyed, ironically, by the fire it was supposed to destroy. Now the city was entirely helpless to defend itself and must burn until the fire would be self-sated by exhausting engorgement. Still, the great water tower remained, standing that night, surrounded by fires that made it useless, mocked by God, a symbol of human frailty and failure, a testament to our arrogance and vanity, empty of hope as it stood empty of water. The courthouse and jails burned up in 20 minutes, while that long block of 40 houses on LaSalle Street opposite Lincoln Park burned in just seven. The air was full of cinders. Pieces of blazing shingles and boards and great strips of flaming tarred felt fell upon fleeing mobs in every direction, now on the roofs of houses yet unburned and now igniting and then on loads of furniture and bedding which people were trying to save and which they were continually obliged to abandon in the street in order to save themselves. 
In the sugar bush, the Bradstreets were surrounded by fire, huddled beneath wet blankets in the farmyard. Their house was lost, their farm ruined, the forest savagely inflamed. In Pishtigo, Father Pernan, up to his neck in the river, thought he would at least be safe from fire, but it was not so. The flames darted over the river as they did over land. The air was full of them, or rather the air itself was on fire. The heads of people were in continual danger. It was only by throwing water constantly over them and their faces beating the river with their hands to keep the flames at bay. Clothing and quilts had been thrown into the river to save them, doubtless, and they were floating all around. Father Pernan caught some that came within reach and covered himself with them and covered the heads of persons who were leaning against him or clinging to him. These wraps dried quickly in the furnace-like heat and caught fire whenever they ceased sprinkling them. The terrible whirlwind that had burst over him at the moment he was leaving home had, with its continuous revolving circle of opposing winds, swept the atmosphere, rose again, and the scene at the river was as bright, brighter than by day, showing these heads rising barely above the level of the water, some covered, some uncovered, Countless hands employed wildly in beating waves, painful to the extreme, burned themselves, and despite this desperation, their hair caught fire. Father Pernan shook his head to acknowledge it. So free was I from fear and anxiety that might naturally have been expected to reign in my mind at such a moment, that I actually perceived the ludicrous side of the scene at times, and I grinned. I even laughed to see it. My parishioners must have thought me insane. When turning my gaze from the river, I chanced to look either to the right or to the left, before me or upwards. I saw nothing but flames, houses and trees. The air itself were on fire, above my head as far as the eye could reach into space. Alas, too brilliantly lighted. I saw nothing but immense volumes of flames covering the firmament rolling one over the other with stormy violence as we might see masses of clouds driven wildly hither and thither by the fierce power of the tempest. Though the furious fire made the heated air unbearable, igniting their hair if they did not keep it continually wet, the river was icy, and they shivered, and teeth chattered, and some would die where they swam in the extremity of that cold, even surrounded by flames. Father Pernan found his eyelids and the surface of his eyes hurt unbearably and felt them seared by the air. Some people's eyes were scarred for life by this heat. Blisters rose up on the flesh of hands, arms, cheeks of many, like the blisters from boiling water, and everyone's face looked sunburned. Father Pernan felt the long harrowing in this icy water giving him severe cramps, and fearing that he might bend and drown, he climbed out of the bank a little distance to test the temperature, to warm even in the peril of it. But his torso rose scarcely out of the river when a voice called from behind him, Father, you're on fire! So he rushed back to the water to extinguish the fire, 
that had instantly claimed his hair and the clothes on his back just by rising to the heated air. A lady whom he did not know, and not a Catholic, but whom he had previously forced into the river and had remained near him and been silent until then, now asks, Father, do you think this is the end of the world?' 